We're back. We're back. It's a distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. Hi, Roth. Hey, man. How's it going? Good. Wow. I have nothing else to say past yeah, wow. that. I didn't actually think you were going to ask me that. It's like every conversation I've ever had at the bus stop when I drop off my kids. How are you doing? Fine. And then Pretty good. I cannot Can't remember complain. a single detail of my existence within the past 24 hours to fill in that space. It's very, very exciting. This is a good time of year for that because if someone asks me like how it's going, there's a chance that I'm like, I was up pretty late last night watching the Summit League final. I don't think either of those teams is going to win a game in the NCAA tournament. Like I'm, It's all dumb, bad thoughts about insignificant shit. So like, usually you can bluff it in a small talky style, but I don't have any normal stuff to refer to now. Do you ever uh, do you ever do that thing with your wife that I do where your first conversation whoa, whoa, whoa. in the morning is how'd you sleep and like do you get like a good five ten minutes maybe yep. out of that? Oh yeah, that's a classic. There did you did you have any dreams while you were asleep? Yeah, interesting. It's not even. It's never like oh I I had a bad time sleeping because I had an erotic dream and I was just so horny I was just up all night thinking about it. It's always like oh I had an itch. And then, oh, I had to pee. <laughs> oh, oh, I forgot to take my vitamin. Oh, like, it's that kind of shit. Yes, the uh, training for the rest of our lives. You know what we should do is we should get a, a guest involved in this conversation. I think this was pretty good. I think we could get 50 minutes of what we were just doing. I think so, too. Uh, and that's good, because our guest this week, it's struggling television writer Mike Schur, who needed the clout of this podcast to draw attention to some of his latest projects. So I suppose... We can indulge him on that. Hi, Mike Schur. How'd you sleep last night? I had an itch, and then <laughs> I didn't take my magnesium, and it was a rough night. Yeah. Oh, uh, my wife, by the way, is an insomniac, and uh, the how did you sleep conversation is not only the first thing that happens, it's like, it's sort of important. It's like, we got to work through it. It's like, a, there's a debrief that has to happen every morning. <laughs> you have to like get out like, like a, the, a log book. Yeah, <laughs> we got to log it. We got to record it. We got to compare notes to last week and uh, and predict next week. So, uh, this, in fact, the last three nights have been particularly bad. We have two dogs, one of whom sleeps on our bed and who is herself apparently an insomniac and who's constantly getting up, twirling around and then falling back down on oh. one of our bodies and waking us up. Is this a and big dog? It's like a, she's like a 55, 60 pound dog. That's a big dog. Yeah. She's pretty big and she's really dense and she's like a, she's like a, a thick sort of muscled dog who uh, just wildly disrupts our lives, especially late at night. And we act like there's nothing we can do about it. Like we don't, yeah. we never like propose a solution. Like we're, it's like, well, we can't, I mean, we can't make the dog sleep on the ground. That wouldn't be, okay. <laughs> that would be yeah, far too out. sensible. I mean, we yeah. could, but she doesn't like that. <laughs> you might say she got yeah. that dog in her. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I might say that. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's, that's the beginning of every one of our days is like a, is like a rehash of how miserable we slept because of our dog. Mostly. I do that's think that, um, you know, when, my kids are, are older now. They're not like, you know, you know, when you say your kids are older, like people are like, oh, they graduated college and they work in media. And it's like, no, that's not like 17, 14, 10, whatever. But I remember back when they were babies, there were a lot of furious arguments. And I assume they still go on about whether or not you should co-sleep with your baby. Right. And sure. I feel like that is potentially an argument or perhaps it is among dog owners 
right now? Like, do you, are you a co-sleeper with your dog? Well, are you coddling the dog when you do that? Shouldn't that dog have some independence? Should you ferberize your dog, Mike? Sure. I don't know. I think that's fair. I think, I think that that is a whole area of discourse that we could open up where people could be really hostile and unreasonable for, for no good reason at all and nothing gets solved. I think the truth is that man and woman's dominion over the dog world suggests that the healthier and better thing to do for all involved is to like have there be a separate place where the dog sleeps near you, but on the ground or in a crate or something. But people in the modern world would consider that cruel. So you just let the dog go wherever it wants to go. And as a result, everyone except the dog is miserable. Entitlement and I, and society. I, Every dog it, gets it a It really handout. is. Every dog, the, the, what happened to personal responsibility, parentheses, right. dogs, and parentheses. <laughs> yeah, giving people, you see them, the dogs walking around, they got a participation trophy in their mouth, usually in the form of a, a large stick that they found or a disgusting tennis ball. People are giving these dogs bones for <laughs> free. <laughs> That's oh, not how I grew up. I got bones. I got bones at, at Christmas time. That was my yeah, gift. Right. If you were lucky, you got a bone. Yeah, that's right. That was a good like, year. Fucking figure it out. Go play two thousand one with your friends. That's what they would say. <laughs> my father was Italian. If you asked him for a bone, he'd be like, "Go get your own fucking bone." This is. That's we're how gonna, we there's going to be a Maniscalco voice portion of every podcast now. There's no avoiding it. We unlocked this last week, and I don't think there's any lock in it. Yeah, you're not point. going back. You're not going back at this point. Uh, Mike Sure is also a baseball fan and a former base blogger, too, and a baseball podcaster right now. So true. when do you, Mike Sure, as a baseball fan, actually start to get excited for baseball? I know pitchers and catchers are reported, and we got you know, spring training and crack of the bat and, you know, uh, all that. <laughs> well, like sp- like sprinklers are starting in my head and all that. Mm-hmm. Do you get excited when pitchers and catchers report? Do you need a bit more time than that? Is it never not baseball season for you? No, I I don't really get excited at spring training. It's hard even for a true baseball sicko like myself. I find it incredibly boring. This year, obviously, it's different because the WBC is happening, which is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll, I, I'm actually looking forward to that. Otani hit two, three run homers in their in their like last tune-up game last night. That's exciting. But I don't, I you know, spring training used to be in the good old days a time when guys who had been like drinking and eating raw steak all all off season and gained thirty five pounds showed up to work off the weight. That was the point of it. It was like, all right, we got to stop drinking, we got to stop boozing, smoking, and and eating. And, and lose 30 pounds before the season starts. Obviously, these guys all year now are doing crazy high-intensity workouts and studying video of their pitch, uh, you know, pitching motions and stuff. And I think it's kind of silly that we still have whatever it is, seven or eight weeks of <laughs> the spring training. Sequestering them for a month <laughs> and a half. Yeah, just being in like, Florida and Arizona. But, like, we need to find a place where there's no good restaurants. Like yeah. that's that was <laughs> how, how TGI these... Fridays only. And so I, I it's annoying to me. I'm like right around now, uh, you know, March 7th or March 11th or something. It's like there's another three goddamn weeks of this before the game started. <laughs> yeah. It's so annoying. So I get excited on opening day uh, and that, that I don't I don't give much uh, attention to spring training this year again a little different not only because the world baseball classic but also because of the new rules i have actually watched some spring training 
just to see what the gameplay is like. And it's kind of fun to see these guys like adjusting to enormous king size pillow shaped bases and uh, rapid fire pitch clocks and stuff. Like I'm, I've gotten a feel for how the game is going to look uh, as a fan and I'm excited for it. But generally speaking, no, April 1st is when I tune in for real. What has gotten you excited about the new rules? Like, what do you, what is it that you're looking forward to apart from sort of the, uh, uh, the, I'd shot and froze the wrong word, but like just the, the idea of watching the players struggle through adaptation to it. <laughs> what, what about the rules themselves have, have, ex- has excited you? There's two big things for me. The first is that even I have to admit that the game, had gotten too slow and borderline unwatchable. I mean, I still watched it. I watched hundreds of baseball games last year. I would do the same this year, even if there were no rule changes. But cutting 30 minutes of dead time out of a game is a very exciting proposition, I think. That's the that's the first and most basic thing. But to me, the the most enjoyable aspect of it so far has been watching like left-handed pull hitters get singles and doubles on balls that are ripped into short right field, which had been completely taken out of the game because of the shift. Right. And now like just watching ground balls go through the, the, the one hole, I guess you would call it between first and second, instead of ending up (laughs) as grounders to like the left fielder playing out of position. Things fielded by the third baseman standing in short right field or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Like Justin Turner of the Dodgers having jogged out to short right softball field and and picking up a one hopper on a ball that has been a base hit our entire lives had gotten tedious. And so I'm just looking forward to more hits. And I, I hope that that is the case. Like, I hope that that is the result. I think it will be. Um, but the game isn't fun unless people get hits. And so that's a, a very simple and basic thing. I mean, for some guys, for Joey Gallo the other day in a spring training game, they literally had their left fielder go play that position. There was no one in the outfield left of center. And so I think they'll still do it from time to time because that's not against the rules. But generally speaking, the left-handed pole hitter is back in black, and that is exciting to me. Yeah. Also, shifting the outfield is funny. That's like, I don't miss the shift. I mean, there was, I was salty about them getting rid of it because I like something about being a baseball fan just like activates the the little Statler and Waldorf gland in your brain. You're just sort of like, oh, I don't know about that. Like, whatever it is. I Change is bad. Yeah. But it's not like I liked watching Howie Kendrick throw somebody out from shallow right. I never got yeah. used to it. I never dug it. And it was like, as you were saying, that these were things that I had seen and understood as base hits and then like having to rewire it to be like, no, actually that's useless. It doesn't matter how hard you hit it or where you hit it. Like the only way that you can get away with any like crafty hitting is if you drop some crappy dork shot down the third baseline, like a swinging bunt style. Yeah. But the fact that they did leave in something that makes the game uh weirder looking and dumber in letting people shift their outfield. Like I kind of appreciate that. Like I don't yeah. want it to be totally normal. Like the way it was in like, the 80s or whatever when I was growing up watching baseball and it was just a bunch of hungover men standing in exactly the same place every time. <laughs> like, I don't miss that that much, but I do, no. like, I I do also appreciate that there's, like, a little bit more of a discernible shape to it now with some stupid shit left around the edges. Maybe you do miss it, Roth. Maybe 
maybe in addition to banning the shift, they should ban all off-season training programs so that you do Ooh. get fatties reporting to spring training. I like this. And you do yeah. get headlines like Derek Eater, which is my favorite New York Post headline. <laughs> Because <laughs> he showed up three pounds overweight or something? Or what? <laughs> and then the subhead was, <laughs> Yankee shortstop takes fork in the road. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so... God bless you, New York Post. Do you yeah. remember uh, Remember Fat Toad? Remember uh, yes. when Steinbrenner R.I.P., obviously, yeah. Hideki. Hideki Rabu, right. Yes. Matsui. Um, yeah, that was a good one, too. We When I worked at SNL, we used to have a game of like you would look at a news story and then try to imagine the New York Post headline and it was endlessly fun and i remember there was a there was one night where i was out super late with some of my friends and we were trying to hail a cab it was like 4:30 in the morning we were trying to hail a cab on 6th avenue and someone said all right what's the if someone took a photo of us right now what's the new york Post headline, and someone immediately said, Cabin Boys, C A B. And oh. it was like, God damn, that's exactly what it is. That yeah. Is exactly. The, the New York Post headline for this meaningless moment in our lives. That is eerily accurate. It's yeah. very, they love. They love the apostrophe. The love it. The I, the the I and apostrophe. They've gotten they so that. much mileage out of the great punny headlines too, because everything once you open that cover it is just a fire hose of room temp fascist shit <laughs> in your face. Like it's everything about that paper sucks. But then like also the, dad jokes are sort of worked into there, and that's what gives it the, the secret yeah. sauce. But you know? like by putting like a silly picture, like Derek Eater somehow is like the antidote to all of that. Like. The rest of it is just so like good. these weird columnists being like, the cops want to get the perps, but the mutts won't let them. You know, it's like <laughs> getting off on technicality. Just, that's the whole fucking paper is that. And then there's also Jets coverage. But like, <laughs> but the, if the puns are good enough, you're kind of like, ah, well, you know, it's part of living in the city. What are you going to do? <laughs> it is a magical part of living in New York. It really is. It's like a... a a piece of you can buy a piece of complete garbage for 25 cents and read it read the entirety of it on the subway um, between like 18th street and 50th street on the one nine and you'll feel like you got your money's worth everybody had a good time everybody wins like and you can hate it and throw it on the ground and leave it for someone else to sit on on the when they get on the train at 50th street that i that i i truly miss i truly deeply miss about life in new york is the New York, how bad the New York Post is. It's one of the great, great things about the city. It's also priced in, like by put, setting that thing on it where they're just basically like, whenever you are too upset with this, just throw it away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's you not asking a lot of you. Yeah. It's to, utterly, it's a piece of tissue that yep. you pulled out of a box and then can dispose of anytime yep. you want without like, feeling like you lost I don't like anything. what's in here. And then, yeah, I that's used it. To, <laughs> I used to read it while walking on the street. Like, because it was before smartphones and my commute was walking across town. So I buy the post for 25 cents and then I get to mm-hmm. some Steve Dunleavy column, like, boil the terrorists and hog fat. And I'd be like, <laughs> well, this is a piece of shit, but I'd read every word of it. And then I'd find out who was canoodling with JLo and then, like, <laughs> and all that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I got on my shit. Like, walking blindly through a fucking crosswalk, reading the New York Post. Yep. And, like a bike could hit me at any second. I didn't care. <laughs> Walking into the office, being like, you see this shit? They were canoodling last night. <laughs> Can you imagine how ignominious a death that would be to be oh. killed by a scooter 
while reading the New York Post walking down 48 Somehow Street. the coroner is able to determine that the last thing you read was about Nikki Hilton getting asked to leave a club. Like, it wasn't even Paris. Like, it's that really is, actually very sad. That does replace the, like, the standard teenage nightmare of being of dying while being caught masturbating like nobody wants. Like, oh, we walked in, he had a heart attack, but his dick was in his hand and he was reading Swank. Oh, what a terrible moment. No one knows what happened. Sadly, it's a medical (laughs) mystery. That's right. That's right. They would leave that shit out. The police report. I remember, while we're remembering some New York posts, I was in New York living there when John Gotti died and they did a full fucking commemorative edition of the post to honor John Gotti after he died. It was like he was a gentleman. The last gentleman criminal. <laughs> Truly a man of honor. Yeah, they love that shit, too. That's all. That was like a big Steve Dunleavy thing, too, was being like, back in the day, Absolutely uh, you know, our mass-murdering, drug-dealing criminals would wear uh, pocket squares. Yeah, they to wear Brioni suits. Together. Yeah. yeah, it's not like today. When, they, when we that That is an, a great aspect of... The Post and New York in general is the romanticizing and the glorification of the shittiest eras of New York yeah. history, <laughs> just like the late 70s. Like, you know, the, the, the idea that somehow anything was better in Manhattan in 1977 than right. it is now or will be tomorrow is such a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful mythology. Where have you gone, Boss Tweed? Right. Why isn't it like that anymore? I can't do the voice, but I'm thinking of, of Lorne Michaels dropping a hint that he knew Travis Bickle personally. <laughs> like, I mean, like, I actually knew Travis. We went to lunch a few times. He was a very no, nice the, man. The thing about Travis is, you know, everyone misunderstood him because he was just a, he, all he was was a, he was a cab driver. That's all he political was. political activist. <laughs> <laughs> we used to do a Tina Fey, everybody does a Lauren, obviously, at SNL. And, and uh, we used to uh, imagine exactly, it was basically exactly that game. It was like Lauren's actual crazy Forrest Gump life of being near and around every important cultural event that had ever happened was blending in our minds with fiction. And so it was like him, yeah, him, him saying he knew Travis Bickle personally would is a perfect example. But I remember Tina Fey did a long bit one time where he, uh, Lauren was talking about vac- uh, having bought a vacation home on Naboo, the planet from, <laughs> from the Phantom Menace, and how beautiful. It was like, Naboo, it's, it's just amazing, the beaches and the... And the <laughs> you know, we have it, we're trying to... Steve and Marty are going to join me, and I think next... In, it's, it just is a beautiful place, Naboo, and I hope, no, I hope people don't... I hope it doesn't get discovered, because it really is just peaceful. And, and it, it was just like the... Hardest I've ever laughed in my life was her doing Lauren on Nebu. <laughs> the Steve and Marty part is always, that's the bit where, it, like, Bobby De Niro, any of these things where you're shortening the name of somebody whose name is not shortened is, like, one of my favorite <laughs> name-droppy things. Like, I do like, I do like it when rich people sort of fawn over, over places they've been. Like, even, like, like, we have, like, all the Barefoot Contessa uh, cookbooks, because we're white. And so, like one of the one we were of the issued ones, them, one of the ones is uh, barefoot in Paris. It's all like her like modified French recipes. And the dedication is uh, to Jeffrey, who helps make Paris so delicious. And that is such <laughs> like I can hear that in my mom's voice, man. I can absolutely just I was one just a, the beaches were absolutely magical in the Aquila. Like that, Jeffrey. It's always Jeffrey. Jeffrey's always always the one who does that for you in Paris, isn't it? Yeah. It's classic (laughs) Jeffrey. 
more to, before we talk about actual sports, I do want to note that I also enjoyed that era of the New York Post because it was back when they really didn't care if the headshots of their columnists were like the least flattering photos of those people. Like Steve Dunleavy looked like he had no teeth. And like Andrea Pizer looked like she just woke up in a fucking gutter yep. after drinking like a bottle of Clorox. Like, and they were like, this is, this is our columnists. They're real. And they're looking at their best. And they're ready to tell you that Jennifer Lopez should dump P. Diddy yep. right now. Cause he's no good. He's a, that was such a classic, like, especially sort of pre nine 11 before all these people like really realized that they were actually fascists. They were just like, I don't know. I guess my job is mostly I give dating advice to famous people. And then sometimes <laughs> I get, sometimes I get upset on behalf of police officers. And that's like, I do that a few times a week. Yeah. And I get, I get $95,000. Right. In, I was going to say, care. and yeah. I have a union job and can't be fired. Like, <laughs> Uh, Mike, last week we got word that Major League Baseball will form a economic reform committee in the wake of owners like Steve Cohen actually spending money in order to win baseball games. Will this committee's work result in anything tangible, or is it just some bullshit they can get on the record for when the CBA expires in 2026 and they can, you know, ask for like half the revenue split that players have right now? I think it's both. I, I don't... Um know to what degree it's just about Steve Cohen. It seems like it's 60 to 70% about Steve Cohen. I think it's about the Padres too. Yeah. But they right. are there are there there seems to be this is a this is pure conjecture on my part. There seems to be a split now between owners who have realized that the value of their franchises increasing relentlessly year over year is just as valuable, if not more valuable, than the idea of actually turning a profit within a given year. So there's right. a bunch of teams that seem to be going to the English Premier League model, right? Which is like, you know, look, if you make the Champions League in Europe and you get that bonus and you win a trophy and you get those bonuses, whatever, great, congratulations, you made a few uh, tens of millions of euro this year. If you don't, you lose a couple tens of millions of euros but ultimately, it doesn't matter because whoever owns Tottenham can sell Tottenham in eight years for 3x what they bought it for. Right. So they're like, look, year over year fluctuates. Who cares? You, we own this team. This team isn't going anywhere. This is the most popular sport in the world. Baseball, given the way the TV contracts were, given the fact that people always need live sports programming, if you bought it with, with maybe one or two exceptions— those being, let's say, the Marlins and the Nationals right now, uh, and maybe the Rays, you know if you own the Mariners that your franchise is going to be more valuable in five years or ten years than it was when you bought it. So teams like the Padres, I just looked this up, the Padres have one, almost $1.5 billion of contract commitments on their books right now, which, as I mentioned on the Dan Lebatard show with Stu Gatz this morning, is the, is the annual GDP of Gambia. So they have decided that they don't care if they lose money this year. They don't care if they lose money five years from now. What they care about is that they bought the Padres for a very small amount of money a few years ago. And at some point in the next five to eight years, they'll probably sell it and they'll make all of the money that they lost back. And that, and that sale price will be significantly higher if in the intervening time they won the World Series and they got to those postseasons and they got those postseason bonuses and they got on the national radar. So there seems to be a split between teams that are taking that long-termism view 
and teams that are still complaining because even though their owner has a net worth of three and a half billion dollars this year, technically speaking, if you amortize everything in exactly the right way and decide to cook your books in exactly the way that books can be cooked by powerful lawyers and accountants, they technically speaking lost three and a half million dollars or whatever. Right. And so I think that the teams that are doing this are the teams that are like, we don't want to have to suffer the indignity of an on-paper loss of $3.5 million in the fiscal year 2025. We only ever want to have made money uh, on paper. So to what degree this is successful, I have no idea. I just know that the smarter teams and the more aggressive owners, the people who actually care about winning, appear to have taken a completely different strategical approach. And the teams that are not doing that, like, for example, my beloved Boston Red Sox, are getting left in the dust even when they have a very high payroll. Oh, hell yeah! Sounds awesome. Red Sox eating (laughs) shit. Fantastic. Eating shit. Yeah, they had to scramble just to keep one of the four generational players that they have, uh, uh, have fallen into their laps in the last decade. So I... I think that there's I think there's real juice behind it. Like I think that these the majority of owners still uh do want to stop the Steve Cohens of the world from doing what they've been doing, which is embarrassing them by proving that you can, if you want to, spend a ton of money and make your team better. Whether they'll be successful, I don't know. Steve Cohen doesn't appear to give a shit about about any kind of luxury tax threshold. There appears to be no amount of money he won't spend. I think it's probable that he's in on Juan Soto if that becomes possible, if the Padres don't extend him. I think he'll be in on Otani. I think he'll be in on everybody because he's just a lunatic Mets fan who wants to win and has $20 billion that he essentially stole from people in various Ponzi schemes. So <laughs> right. why would you care if you have your luxury tax bill is another 80 or $100 million? Who cares? It's, all, it's literally all house money for him at this point. That's the thing that I've been amused by in the, the coverage of Cohen this year. There's a lot of, I think it's John Heyman, but there's like a couple of your national baseball writers that have made a big deal out of the fact that the Mets do expect to lose a good amount of money this year. Like, or at least they can't make it back up in, you know, TV revenues or, you know, at the gate or whatever, even though I imagine they're going to sell out most games. And every one of those stories has some quote from Cohen where he's like, I don't care about this. Like you can write your story, but like, you should know this is not important to me. Like I have more money than I could spend. And yeah, like, as you said, like it's all money that like should have gone to orphans and affordable housing. And he's just spending it. He's like, at least I'm not buying more fucking Jeffrey Kuhn sculptures. Like, I don't know what it is (laughs) that I can do for you. Yeah. But yeah, the thing I'll say about, uh, Cohen and how he is spending this stuff relative to how the Padres are doing it. I think both are admirable. The thing that, because I think if the Mets had signed Carlos Correa, that would have signaled something different. What Cohen has said he wanted to do is build an organization like the Dodgers, or I think like the Red Sox were for a time when they were continuing to produce Bogarts and Devers and like guys like that, who they were developing, like before you have to pay those guys, you're getting way more from them than you're giving them. The Mets don't have, they still have this kind of like janky farm system player development apparatus that's left over from the previous ownership. They spent a lot of money trying to modernize it and get it up to speed, not just on principle because Cohen wants to be the Dodgers East and you can't be the Dodgers without the Dodgers player development abilities, but because if you look at the deals that they signed, Brandon Nimmo is the only one that's like really a significant commitment. That's eight years. A lot of the rest of it is basically designed to be 
two years to five years, which if everything goes right, at that point, the farm system is going to be producing. They won't need to use free agency like this. Right. I think that that's the sort of argument that if, again, if Cohen were interested in explaining himself to his peers, I think he could do that and probably calm them down a little bit. I am really working hard not to mistake Steve Cohen for someone that is my friend. He is not. <laughs> like, he's beyond <laughs> he, being like he a class enemy. He's yeah, he rules. literally hates you. Yeah. yeah, I know. And I know that. And I honor that. Uh, and honestly, like, in most ways, I agree with him. But I think that the... <laughs> The thing that's important about this is that, like, he's not – by not, like, completely rolling over for this, like, peer group, it is the one little break in that solidarity that I have seen. Most of – like, most baseball owners, like, look out for other baseball owners fundamentally and far before they look out for anybody else. Yeah. And Cohen seems uh, perfectly willing to annoy them. And I, you know, whatever, for all the other bad things about him. And again, like, he shouldn't exist, shouldn't be as rich as he is. Uh, Got to respect the fact that he's uh, pissed really rich people off. You shouldn't 100%. hedge. You should be go full Mets fan and be like, fuck yeah, stick Uncle it to him, motherfucker. Uncle Stevie, I love your work. <laughs> That's Can right. Can I have one of those dog sculptures Legend. that you got? Legend. Yeah. We love By the him. way, total side note, but that. Is, has anyone ever done the world a greater service than the woman in Miami who accidentally knocked over and shattered that Jeff Koons balloon dog thing yep. at that? Uh, like, I was, it made me so happy because it's like, it's just a factory. It churns them out. They yeah. all sell for between 50 and thousand and two and a half million dollars or whatever. And then when I read the details of it, it was like this was one in a series of identical little stupid balloon dogs that it was like out of a series of like 199 or whatever. And it's like they just it's like he's running like a like a souvenir shop in a small town in New England that just has yep. like 150 identical little porcelain turtles or whatever and they, but they're all selling for $50,000 and by knocking by destroying one in that way all she did was make the others in that series more valuable now it's it's like it's like a baseball card that's like a, a short printed baseball card where one of them just got ripped in half well now the other 98 out of 99 are more valuable because yep. there's only 98 of them so I like everything about that delighted me and it really laid bare how disposable that kind of art is that fake art that people like Steve Cohen yeah the asset don't class know what to, yeah they don't know art. what to spend their money on so it's like I'll buy eight more balloon dogs and just put them around my house yep great bit of art criticism by accident you got to respect it let's <laughs> yeah. uh let's take a break and we'll come right back before we do take that break I just want to note that today's podcast is sponsored by Bonecoin the world's first male sexual enhancement cryptocurrency. Our annual return yield of 42% will keep your woman pleased for hours on end. Finally, it's fun to make money the hard way with Bonecoin. Investments not insured by the FDIC. We'll be right back with Mike Schur right after this. Hey, it's Drew here to tell you about Tab for a Cause. Tab for a Cause is a browser extension that lets you raise money for charity while doing your thing online. If you install the extension on Firefox, Chrome, or Safari, it'll show you a beautiful photo and a small ad every time you open a new tab. Now, part of that ad money goes to a charity of your choice. They've raised over $1.5 million so far, and they even publish quarterly financial reports so you can see exactly how much they give to each charity and what their other costs are. So join Team Distraction by signing up at tabforacause.com. 
tabforacause.org slash distraction. That's tabforacause.org slash distraction. And we're back with Mike Sure, Mike, we should talk to you about your day job because in addition to being a baseball fan, you also, uh, you know, are the guy behind like the office in Parks and Recreation in The Good Place in Rutherford Falls. And like, I don't know, half the shows on television. <laughs> Mike, I want to ask you before we talk about the nuts and bolts of television production, you went woke many years ago and yet you did not go broke. What was your secret? <laughs> <laughs> There's money in going woke, guys. If you just so you true. just don't know where to find it. What? I don't believe that for a second. You didn't notice the executive producer George Soros credit on hacks? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I for, I also I don't believe that we should be using the phrase going woke anymore for one thing. I know you're joking, but I, first of all, it was like appropriated from like as all things are from like black twitter slash drag culture and yes it, and it embarrasses me on behalf of just everyone when you hear like ron DeSantis giving like an angry speech about wokeism the woke like, mind it, virus Ugh. yeah like i i i think that we should i i think we should the word itself has ceased to mean anything and and as like all words in english that cease to mean anything we should probably just stop using it but if you're talking about a general sense that like you should give a shit about other people and care about their lives and health and happiness, then I would say, yes, I, that is a thing that I ha ascribe to and have sought to ascribe to in my personal life for a long time now. I don't think that makes me interesting or unique or special or better than anyone else. But uh, it is fascinating to watch that concept of like empathy essentially now being weaponized and used as a like we're never going to allow this in florida or whatever right. like that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll never we will never give a shit about anyone in florida i promise you i'll be honest mike i i didn't expect you to actually answer that question earnestly and frankly that was quite woke of you to do that so i thank, thank you. you for being able to do that. <laughs> it was funny is that it has it, it doesn't mean anything anymore and i think that um conservatives seized on it because it's such a good catch-all term for them to uh, sort of use for their overriding ethos of, you know, the basic message from Republicans is like, hey, listen, white guys, we're not going to let anybody else have your shit. Like, mm -hmm. not your money, not your jobs, not all those racial epithets you like to say when you're like drinking and stuff like that. We won't let anybody have any of that. And the people who want to take it from you, they're woke. Yeah, it's, it, it's funny because they want, they want to say it. They want to say like all of what you just said and then also, you know, the other words. And this is as close, I think, as they've gotten to saying it. And yet they're still like it's not a very good word and they're not very good communicators. So it's just this sort of thing where you're dealing with someone being like, did you just say that that's kind of a woke neighborhood? Like, what do you mean by that? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like the, and I don't think that they're quite ready to say what they mean by it yet. Uh, yeah. It's time to actually talk about serious showbiz questions uh, because the top part of show business is decidedly unenlightened. I'll use the word unenlightened instead of hmm. word. Netflix uh, lost subscribers in aggregate for the first time a year ago. Comcast is no longer letting its customers have Peacock for free. And Warner Brothers Discovery is yanking shows like Westworld off of HBO Max just to save money on residuals. Now, you have more skin in this game than anyone, Roth, 
or I know. Do you personally worry about where television as an industry is headed in terms of both how it's managed and how it's consumed? I do. I should say, in the interest of, I suppose, something approaching full disclosure, that I'm actually on the, the negotiating committee for the WGA in our upcoming NBA uh, negotiations with the companies. So some of what I say, I'll have to dance around a little bit um, in detail. But uh, yeah, of course, I'm always worried about it. It's a weird business. It has a... Um, it has a, a lot of moving parts that are moving now more and in weirder directions than they ever have moved before. And there is a, this added and pretty unpleasant element of sort of like Wall Street, quasi-venture capital, essentially, Wall Street investment that is demanding in these new business models that profits not only exist, but expand every year relentlessly. And so these companies have been in this arms race to switch from a broadcast model to a subscriber model. And, you know, Netflix, part of the reason Netflix had that brief uh, dip in subscriber numbers is because essentially they have saturated the market. There are very few people in America, for example, that don't have Netflix that could or would ever want to have Netflix. And so they've kind of it's like it's like mcdonald's right they expanded across the entire nation and they're packed in everywhere they can be packed in and now it's they're a saturation only, point is what you're saying yeah. yeah and so now their only choices are increased fees as they have done or add an ad tier which they have also done or basically look to other countries like look to brazil and look to argentina and look to south korea and wherever else they can get their networks up and running and as a result, you know, when companies hit these saturation points, and, and again, Netflix and Disney are lapping the field in terms of su subscriber bases, a there's a couple sort of residual effects. One of them is the other companies consolidate in order to keep up. So Discovery borrowed something like 50 or $60 billion to buy Warner Brothers, which is an insane thing to do. They don't. They didn't have the money to buy it. Speak for yourself. I did, did that a week ago. They just, oh, I go to the right, bank, they enough. give me $50 billion. <laughs> so they they are doing the, all that stuff you're talking about of like, they make movies and then they realize that it's probably more beneficial to them to not air the movie and write off the loss in order to drive their debt down than it is like to Batgirl. Just they the did that with Batgirl, correct? They did it with Batgirl. They did there are there are a large number of projects, very expensive projects that have either completed shooting or gotten very close to shooting or uh or have gotten have spent a ton of money and they make a really brutal calculation, which is, oh, this is better for us to throw this in the toilet yeah. than it is to actually air it. There's one that we were watching that, like, it. not only did they pull the plug on, apparently, like, while it was basically in post-production, the show Minx, which was on HBO Max. Yeah. Very yeah. funny. If they pulled the whole thing. It's It just wasn't on the streaming service a yeah, day sure. after we had watched an episode. And then, like, we read that there was a whole other season that they were making that, like, also may never see the light of day. Or yes. it'll get just, like, quietly put on Tubi in a year and a half. Right. They might sell it to some other place to try to make a little money or something. But generally, they're, yeah, they're just killing these things. And when you think about the, the irony here is that the residual model on streaming 
is pretty bad. Like the amount that they have to pay the artists who made the shows, the actors and writers and directors is pretty low amount of money. And you, you're like, God, it's not even worth, they don't even want to pay that. Like they don't even want to pay the lower uh, residual model money to just keep a show in their library and available for people to watch. They'd rather just throw it in the garbage and save a couple million bucks or whatever over the lifetime of the show. That I think is a, is a kind of betrayal that is symbolic to me because the promise of this new world, right, was everything that we now make can be viewed forever by people. People can discover shows from a long time ago uh, and and fall in love with them because they're just in a library on one right. of these streaming services. Yeah, it doesn't like, have to like get aired it, on A&E at the time exactly. that you're watching A&E. Yeah, and there are there are, you know, over the pandemic, your my kids are a little younger than your kids drew, but on over the pandemic, my kids discovered a bunch of old shows that they really liked. My daughter watched all of Gilmore Girls and really loved uh, it. Oh, my daughter watched all of it too. Like twice. Yeah. I was like, "God right. damn." And and that's great. Like that should be the case. Like that was the promise of this new world was this is the in-demand era and we can go back and watch all these things. And for it, it to save a tiny amount of money, they're now just selectively going through and just culling their libraries and just tossing shit in the garbage. So that's not is that the worst part of this new system? Not by a long shot, but it is indicative of this penny pinching. Uh, Wall Street kind of lower our debt, lower our financial exposure anywhere we can kind of universe that is causing a lot of trouble. And, you know, again, going back to my 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 non-day job, my my uh, moonlighting job as a member of the WGA negotiating committee, what we're fighting against is the natural progression of this stuff, which has reached a point where in this insatiable thirst for profit and for uh, lowering debt and all that stuff, they're looking anywhere they can to squeeze uh, costs. And one of the places they found is labor. Labor is a cost, is a is a red item on their uh, ledgers, and they're trying to, to squeeze labor. And that's what always happens in these industries is labor gets screwed. And so we're now at the point where we have to push back. The thing that I... And thinking and hearing you explain all of this, it's sort of, I don't want to like link everything to our experiences, you know, with uh, bad management um, in our past, but that I wonder where this all goes. Like from what you're describing, the idea that like if every show is fundamentally a thing that, or every product, every movie, whatever, that these studios are making is the sort of thing where they're doing it under duress and are just kind of like, oh, look at all this money that we spent on this. Look at all this money we're going to lose paying out some tiny percentage of, uh, you know, the money that we make for airing it again. Like, at some point, what do do you think these studios want the future to look like? Like, is the idea just like, well, we're only going to make hits? Or, like, there's – it doesn't feel not just, like, realistic to me, although it doesn't feel realistic to me. It is also just sort of – I can't see – where this sort of inimical pose relative to the product that you make and sell, I don't know how you square that. Like, I don't know what exactly they see a future looking like in that way. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh, and I think the answer is that it differs a little bit company to company. For example, 
if you are Disney or Disney Fox, as they're now sort of casually called, you don't worry about that so much because you know that every single parent in the world forever will have to subscribe to your service. They need Disney animation, Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar. Like they, they were very smart in the way, I mean, they, part of these, they, that's just their company, but their acquisitions were really smart, really targeted. I mean, they bought, they bought Lucasfilm for $4 billion. Think of how, and at the time it was like, wow, that's a lot of money. Think of how much money they've already made from just right. owning the Star Wars IP, how many shows they've made. They bought Marvel for, I don't know what they bought Marvel for, but I mean, that's tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue. They have Probably now made from that one. Too, right? Yeah. Because it was like Roger did. Corman owned those rights. At yeah. Some point. It was nothing. So, but then you look at the company that I work for, which is Comcast Universal, which has been around for a very long time. They just don't have that must have IP. They just don't have those those tentpole franchises that are going to keep people subscribing forever and ever and ever. So they've had to essentially build their streaming service from the ground up. They have a couple things, right? They have some some classic universal movies that people kind of care about. They have uh the Illumination folks, uh, you know, the the uh Minions Despicable movies me. and stuff like that, Despicable yeah. Me stuff like that. But are you going to spend 10, 12, 15 bucks a month every single month for the rest of your life for that? I'm not sure. So what's happening is they are all realizing that it is way more um, expensive to just develop a billion shows than it is to just buy a company that already has a billion shows and pieces of IP that they care about. That's why Warner Brothers bought, or Discovery bought Warner Brothers. It's why there are continuing rumors that... Um, that Comcast Universal is going to merge with Viacom or Paramount or something like that. They're, they're all fighting to get to a point where their product line is indispensable to the consumer, not just now, but five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. The reason that's hard is that it takes a really long time to build a library of content that people care about, and it's really expensive to buy one. So they're caught in this weird zone where they need enough stuff that is readily available for everyone uh, to warrant charging them what they want to charge. But they also are being told, essentially by Wall Street, if you don't increase your profits now very fast, more, 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 continually, your stock price is going to tank and all those people who have who get paid largely in stock options and in, in future bonuses based on stock price are going to suffer and they don't like suffering. So it's it's this weird gray area where they're, I don't think they're 100% sure, some of them, do we do this by acquisition? Do we do it by development? How do we spend billions of dollars on new content and also still have billions of dollars coming in while, because some of those shows are destined to fail as, as some of, you know, the, if you hit, it's sort of like baseball. I think if you hit 300 in a given year, if three out of every 10 of your shows or movies are hits, that's a good year. And that's hard to do. Not everybody, they have, there's, you know, when I first started at SNL a million years ago, GE owned NBC and it was the worst possible corporate parent because GE is a company that was relentlessly focused on like nine to 11% profit growth in every division every year. And from time to time, every year at some point, I can't remember when this was, at what point in the year it was, but GE would have its, you know, corporate annual 
meeting. And we would see these lying around the offices. There would be these like big glossy books that were like the, the GE year long profit report. And you would flip through it and like section one would be like locomotives and section two would be <laughs> jet engines and section three would be appliances and section four would be financial services. And like section 11 in the back was entertainment and <laughs> sketch like, you know, comedy. Yeah. It's and, really easy to imagine like, that meeting being like, well, or like why is our like laser guided missile division doing so much better than our fart joke division? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, quite literally what it was and as a business a if you are if your goal is relentless 9 to 11% profit growth year over year every year in every division you shouldn't own an entertainment company cuz there's going to be fallow years there's going to be years where you don't have a fast and furious movie come out and instead you try a bunch of stuff and it doesn't work and you lose you are flat or you're down and so these companies now are trying to expand at such a rate and are trying to compete in a landscape that basically rules out the uh, possibility of failure in any six-month or 12-month span. And that's just not an achievable goal in the entertainment industry. You are going to have crappy years. It's just part of the deal because it's not. you're not making jet engines. You're not making right. laser-guided weapons. You're making art and, like it or not... Sometimes the art doesn't work. People don't respond to it. They don't buy it. They don't like it. So, and sometimes that I, art goes woke. And uh, whoa, well, no, the worst. We're not that's doing the worst it. Possible fate. But that's. I, it's funny. I think that's well said. But that was the thing when, as you were describing all this, where I was like, I'm not. The thing I'm not hearing is like, where do you make stuff? Like, where do you like? Where is the actual like creative? aspect of this. And I guess the answer is that it's like, you know, under previous ownership or it is just like not, it is getting crowded out in a way that, it, you know, it probably always was, but now is getting crowded out uh, in a way that obviously is uh, putting you on the cusp of a major labor action, I guess you would yeah. say. Yeah. And and it, it is getting crowded out, but it's also, I don't know if this even makes sense to say, but it's getting like crowded in because part of this new process is, look, Netflix built its company on the back of other companies. They went around to all these studios and said, hey, you know those old shows that you have in your library that no one cares about anymore? We'll buy them all for a dollar an episode. And all these companies were like, great, free money, right? No one wants the uh, to... Right now, it's not really helping us to have home improvement in our library. Like, we've made our eight rounds oh, of oh, syndication oh, oh, deals. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, sure, you can have it for a dollar an episode. Great. So then suddenly Netflix became this clearinghouse of like stuff that you might want to watch, like just old shows, old sitcoms, old movies, whatever. And before the company, the other companies knew what was happening, Netflix had whatever, 25 million subscribers paying seven or nine or 11 bucks a month. And then they started making their own stuff and their own stuff became popular. And suddenly, they were the biggest game in town. I mean, it, it cannot be that the history of this era will show that Netflix is the single most innovative and disruptive company that I think this town has ever seen. They upset the balance and the order of a century-old business in like five years. They completely changed everything, and everybody else has been scrambling to catch up ever since. For the better? So, well, I don't know if it's for the... It depends on who you mean by that if stockholders yes uh to some extent artists uh, in the sense that like 
shows that could never get made anywhere else suddenly were able to get made potentially but well, now I, mean, I, I know it's better than for like finn wolfhard i'm just thinking about like <laughs> yeah like consumer yeah consumers and artists in general Cons- i would say uh, i would say it's 50 50 i think that half of the formula here is that it's better than it used to be and half is that it's worse part of what they did though is they forced these companies to silo off in the old days your the whole point of working in a studio was the studio paid for and helped you make your shows and then you could go around and sell them to whoever whatever buyer you wanted that's why famously friends was a warner Brothers show that aired on nbc right but now these companies all have silos and they don't want to buy anything from their from a place that isn't their home company because they don't own it they don't own all of the points on the back end and all the rights to it and everything else and so you know, it was always a little bit that way. They always preferred to keep things in house, but they would sell happily sell things to other companies. Now, Netflix has no studio attached to it. So if you work for Netflix, Netflix just does your thing. And they don't want to pay the vig, basically, of having a legacy studio attached to a project. So all of these companies are siloing off, which means if you are working for one of those companies, if you can't sell your stuff, get your home turf company interested in making the thing that you want to make, it's exponentially harder to sell it anywhere else than it used to be. And in fact, there are companies that can't make deals. They have not, they have no pattern deal to buy something from an outside studio. So I love FX as a network. I think FX is great. Universal, which is where I work, essentially can't make a deal at FX. You can't produce a show through Universal and sell it to FX because they can't figure out the economics of it in a way that makes both of them happy. So there are whole swaths of the entertainment landscape that are cut off to people who work at studios. And that, generally speaking, is obviously anti-competitive and bad for business. I like that it made it more complicated, but also worse. I also, <laughs> but, I was all, that was very interesting. And I have to move on to the guy of the week. But before we do that, I just do, I do want to note that there was a, a hidden Michael, Michael Scott-ism in what Michael just said, which was he was... Like, I can picture Michael Scott saying, instead of crowding people out, let's crowd people in. <laughs> like, that felt very, I liked that. I liked the disruption. That is that. very, it is exactly as meaningless as something Michael Scott would say. I yeah. feel like, the, as someone who's had to do it, you spend enough time in uh, bargaining committee meetings sitting across the table from uh, your employer's attorneys, and sooner or later, your brain will be damaged. As no, no, I, so I, no he, he, it was a very, very well-articulated <laughs> no. point. So I didn't want to go back and be like, hey, that one thing you said, that was really funny and stupid, Mike. <laughs> ah. Time for the guy of the week. Every week, we remember an athlete of yours, not a Hall of Famer per se, but just a guy who makes you think, hey, I remember that guy. Now, Mike, sure, since you work in television, I was going to throw a curveball at you figuratively and have Bernie Capel be our uh, guy of the week. However, I decided to go with a baseball player, and your guy of the week is Candy Maldonado. You remember him, Mike, sure? Oh. Candy Maldonado, how could you forget? First of all, Candy Maldonado fielded Pete Rose's 4,192nd hit. Ah, wow. Holy shit. Yeah, what a perfect, um, perfect confluence. Yeah, but but uh, yes, of course I remember Candy Maldonado, legendary Padre, legendary guy to remember. Um, 
uh, a little on the chunkier side. Yeah, he was a dense, kind of a thickish man. Back when baseball was baseball, damn it. Back when, back when the, you needed the eight weeks to lose to drop the offseason yep. weight, and maybe he didn't take full advantage of that. There were two year. types of baseball bodies you could have. You could be shaped like a character from RBI Baseball for the original Nintendo, mm-hmm. or you'd had the like the John Candelaria body shape where you were just. <laughs> A very skinny man who ate poorly. Just a wispy, a wispy weakling. Yeah, yes. uh, uh, with a closed stance. I had an. I had an. I didn't uh, know if I was able to do this, but I had another nomination for guy of the week. Uh, yeah, you can. You my, can. You're you a, don't turn we'll those down. Do it. We'll throw you a bone, Mike. Uh, sure. Based on my recent spate of old baseball card opening and remembering guys, which we got to do, Joe Posnanski and I on our podcast, the Poscast on Metal Arc Media. Bing! had Roth on as a as a special guest in a in a, it was very I hope I expressed this to you properly it was incredibly meaningful to me to have you remember guys with us for me uh, as well also it scandalized uh my friends in a way that I would they were like this episode is two and a half hours long and I was like I I know that I was there for it <laughs> I'm shocked we kept it to a tight 230 frankly it was a moderately <laughs> tight 230 there was like nine guys that played during the 1980s that were not remembered during that episode it came yes, pretty and, close and here's one of them it's an I have a I recently opened a pack of 1983 Fleer baseball cards and found old Charlie Huff lying there waiting oh, for me. That's a pretty young-looking version Aww. of Charlie Huff as well. I know our there, listeners can't see it. There's a young Charlie Huff? He was young yeah. at one point? It's, I had the same thought, and the funny thing is this is season 13 for him. Yeah. He'd been playing since 1970. He would later uh, be a Marlin. That's how long he played. <laughs> he always looked later. like He always looked like a fucking gas station clerk in a Coen Brothers movie yes. for his entire life. He's like, my, my wife was from Temple, Texas. And then, yeah. And then, If you look at his card, as I have spent a lot of time doing now, first of all, great, um, great writing on the back. Very, I would say David Roth-esque baseball card writing. It says, perfected knuckleball, thanks to <laughs> flutterball great Hoyt Wilhelm. So they use two, <laughs> two different yep. terms for the same pitch in almost back-to-back. Also managed to avoid the, uh, the pronoun there, which is savvy. You want these to be worded like a telegraph message. It's like you said, it's how, how is baby born? Yeah, how is, how is baby born? Baby born well, stop. Per- perfected knuckleball. The second fact is fanned Willie Stargell with the bases loaded in Major League debut in 1970. That, to me, uh, Charlie Huff getting a a 61-mile-an-hour knuckleball past Willie Stargell with the bases loaded, that must have killed Willie Stargell. He must have never gotten over that. Especially because (laughs) this is a guy he hadn't heard of, who, as I remember, because I had some early career Charlie Huff cards in my collection, he looked like Ross Perot from the moment he arrived in the majors. So he's just facing a little guy throwing slow. Yep, made that shit work for like three decades. Six uh, two, not that little actually. Okay, six two. Well, let's open up still. the fun bag. These are real questions from defector readers and distraction listeners. This is from Matthew. We only got time for one, Mike. Sure, this is from Matthew. Matthew writes in. I started a new job a couple months ago. One thing I've noticed is that the men's bathroom constantly smells like vanilla cupcakes. I'm sure this is a spray or something employed by the janitors, but I've just got to ask. 
Who is clamoring for their bathroom to smell like cupcakes? I can't imagine <laughs> someone is dropping a deuce and going, oh, yeah, I love that it smells like a bakery in here. Are you against vanilla-scented cupcake smells in bathrooms, Mike Sure, or vanilla scents in general, really? This is an insane complaint to me. Uh, compared, what what's the alternative? Think about the alternative. Like, I would... I'll take my communal bathroom smelling like literally anything except what I know it really smells like. Yeah, that's I, fair. Like, I mean, come on. Like, light it. Any peppermint, vanilla cupcake, <laughs> chocolate chip cookie, give me any spray or chemical you've got to cloak that smell. I mean, Here's the, the thing, though. It doesn't really cloak it. Like, when they, when they got a scent in the bathroom... It doesn't mask the shit. It just smells like shit and vanilla cupcakes instead of just only know. vanilla cupcakes. I, those things are pretty... You know that... Um, what's that spray that everybody has in their bathroom? It's called like poo... poo something poo. You know what I'm Fe- talking about? Febreze? Uh, Not poopery. Poopery. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff works. In my oh. experience, that stuff works. Like uh, a couple spritzes of that, that uh, is a pretty, does a pretty good like Romulan cloaking job on the, on the scent. They say we don't make things in this country anymore, and yet, <laughs> clearly, <laughs> at some point, somebody invented, they were like, this is it. This is like, we tested it against the strongest poops, like, just yeah. going up and down the Jersey Turnpike, walking into a rest stop and being like, this is for science. I'm going to spray this in the air. Just guys in white lab coats on the, yeah. in every, like, every like Taco Bell house. bathroom. Peter Coyote with the keys on his belt coming in. Oh, that's a good one. As an aside, by the way, and this is an old memory, but like vanilla scents, uh, vanilla scented car fresheners. Like when I got into a car that had one, that was never a happy moment for me. Like Car fresheners are different. Car fresheners are brutal. They can yeah. make me like, guys, I think you, you're inclined to get car sick anyway when you're a kid and like, my my uh I had an uncle who used to smoke cigars in the car with the Ooh. And, mm. and then there was like a oh, don't worry, I got a car freshener, an air freshener, and then it was like it was just a a long, grueling car ride wherever yeah. we went. I remember a family vacation. We used to go to Hilton Head, South Carolina every summer. The classic time to go to Hilton Head. Yeah. August. <laughs> uh, and we would my parents got a minivan there once that smelled so powerfully of cherry coke that was the um that was the air freshening attempt to like whatever it was that had happened in there which i'm assuming was just like a family of vermin died like they yeah. really needed to go hard as hell on that and it was in the way that any of those uh smells are when it's too intense it was like we it was smelled like that for 2 weeks like it was like us bringing our I would say powerful smells to bear on that. And we never made a dent in the fucking cherry Coke thing. It was just overwhelming. Eric Silver is our producer. Brandon Grugel is our editor. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. Ads and production services are by Multitude. And you, distraction listeners, can subscribe to Defector.com right now. Just go to Defector and hit that subscribe button. You can also email us at distraction at Defector.com or even call us and leave a voicemail at 909 726 3720 and leave a message. That's 909 Panera Zero. Okay. And Mike, sure, uh, can you plug something while uh, while we have you and then we can all go? If you uh, want between 90 and 160 minutes of nonsense and baseball talk, do I? check out the podcast on Metal Arc Media. Joe Posnanski and me, sometimes special guests like the great David Roth, remembering guys. I did do it. Um, and uh, it's a it's a good time if you like things that are nothing. Yep, it changed it changed my life. 
Awesome. Oh, thank you so much for coming on, Mike. We hope to have you back on again. Thank you, Roth. We'll see you all next week. Bye. 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 <laughs>